And now I hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 9, continuing our study in Luke's gospel. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet. And told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. And we thank you for preserving it. And we thank you that we can gather here together to hear it. And to study and learn what you have said. So Father, make me a capable messenger of these truths. Open my lips. Give me articulate speech. Uh, help us all to think clearly, deliver us from distraction, deliver us from all error, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our closest kinsman, amen. amen. Have you ever been on the outside of an inside joke? You know, the only person in the room who wasn't laughing, everybody's laughing and you're looking around saying, what? What's so, what's so funny about that? And you're not laughing because the joke was inappropriate. You're, you're not laughing because uh, maybe you didn't have good comedic timing. You're laughing because you didn't get it. You didn't, you didn't know the setup. And it feels very awkward. You think about it. You try to find out why it's funny. And you kind of <laughs> giggle half-heartedly. You kind of smile. Yeah, that's, that's funny. Because you don't want anybody to think that you're being a stick in the mud. But the more you think about the joke, the less it makes sense. We've all been there. So we can sympathize with Peter on the mountain when he wakes up out of a comfortable sleep. You know, Jesus is over there praying, as he often does. He prays to his father. Je Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up to the top of the mountain. They're taking a nap. And then when he wakes up, Peter wakes up to see Jesus' face and clothes shining. And he's just hanging out chatting with Moses and Elijah. Right before his very eyes, Peter sees the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus. He sees two of the biggest people in his people's history. And there, in euphoria, Peter blurts out this incredible suggestion. Hey, we need to build three tabernacles. One for you, and one for you, and one for you. Everybody gets a tabernacle today, and we all build tabernacles. And we just stand up here and, and sit and soak up this incredible situation, this incredible scene. Luke says... When Peter said that, he didn't know what he was saying. Luke says he didn't know what he was talking about. 
It's like when you don't know what to say, so you just start moving your lips so the words fall out. You know, when you, when you like when your kid runs in from outside and they're just breathless and they can't get it out. It's like, I was, okay, I had a ball and I was swinging and, and the thing, the stick went and, and, I, and the grass, but I saw a bird and, and, but Jimmy said, you know, and they just can't get a sentence out. That's, that's the breathlessness as Peter opens up his mouth and starts talking. Peter is interrupted, though, from further embarrassing himself. Peter's interrupted by the voice of God. The voice of God speaks from out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And when the voice of God ceased, there was silence. And then again, you can just imagine Peter, James, and John standing there looking at each other in the silence. What? Peter says. What, what did I say? What, what's going on? The gospel writers make it obvious that these three apostles didn't understand right away the importance of what they saw up on that mountain. They didn't understand what was happening. But how are we doing with it? Having just heard it and having just read it, what is the meaning of this event? What are we supposed to learn from this? How is it to shape our thoughts and our lives? Honestly, I have to tell you, I have to sympathize a lot with Peter. Uh, because this is hard to understand and it's hard to get what, why did Jesus do this and what is the, or why was this done to Jesus and what is happening here? It wasn't uh, until Peter writes in his second epistle that we get some more clarified thought from Peter on what he saw that day. In second Peter, uh, Peter writes this in chapter one, verse 16, he says, we don't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Peter has had time to absorb and contemplate and think about this, especially now that he knows the Lord Jesus better and he knows his plan and he knew the Lord Jesus better, even, uh, <clears throat> even better after his resurrection. But among all the things that Peter witnessed in his time with Jesus, this certainly stood out so that he writes about it maybe 30 years later when he writes his second epistle. And it stood out for John too. Uh, it's been said, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain the transfiguration account that we just read this morning. And it's been said, John never spoke about the transfiguration. Well, he did. He did speak about it, but he spoke about it in his first chapter. Remember how John starts? John starts, uh, in him was life, and life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. So John has to be thinking of this event as he writes those words. So let's walk through this story today and see what we can learn. See if we can get to where Peter ends up and where John ends up uh, eventually. 
And we call this, and I've already used the word, transfiguration. We call this event the transfiguration of Christ. And all that's meant by the word transfiguration is in this event, Jesus' image and his appearance was visibly changed. The significance of that change, the reason for that change is what we need to work to understand. Now, remember last week, we studied uh, Jesus' words where he begins to lay out for his men the path that he is on, a path that is going to end in betrayal and rejection and abuse and death and resurrection. And they can't fully comprehend what all of this means. Still, he gives them a glimpse of a future by, by using words like rejection and abuse and, 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 um, and death, and then using the word, he'll be raised again on the third day. This story is going to be hard and it's going to be glorious. There are going to be some very bitter things, and then there are going to be some glorious things. So he invites them then to join him on this way of sacrifice and glory. And now Luke tells us what happens eight days after those things, after the things we read about last week. Eight days. Why does he say eight days? Does it matter how many days it was? Did he just write eight days because that's how many days it was? We get details like this, like eight days later for a reason. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste ink. He doesn't waste paper. He doesn't waste breath. What's the significance of eight days? Well, the world was created in six days. The seventh day is the Sabbath day when God rested, but the eighth day is the first day of a new week. And so symbolically throughout the Bible, the eighth day is the first day of a new creation. The eighth day is the first day of a new thing. So, uh, Boys are circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, animals are dedicated, new, new animals, uh, baby animals are dedicated on the eighth day. So birth and newness and the eighth day go together. Um, when Aaron and his sons were, were set apart to be priests, they remained in the tabernacle for seven days. And then on the eighth day, they came out and offered their sacrifices and their priestly work began on the eighth day. What day is the Lord Jesus resurrected on? He's resurrected on the eighth day, the, 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 the day, first day of the new creation. And, and this becomes the new Lord's Day. So Luke points this out. He tells us that eight days after Jesus talks about his suffering, he's revealed in his glory. And we're supposed to make all these connections and say, yeah, obviously, this is a preview of the new creation work that God is going to do through the Lord Jesus. And we are to see these very obvious connections between his suffering, his sacrificial work, and his glory. And I'm going to keep pointing back to this, that these two things are not incompatible. We would separate those. We would say suffering is one thing, glory is another. Uh, dying and honor are two different things. But but Jesus, in, his, uh, in, in both the way he speaks to his apostles and the way he, he acts out this story, he's always bringing these two things together. The sacrifice and the glory, the suffering and the honor. These two things belong together. And on this day, Peter, James, and John are, un- are to understand that the one who's going to be rejected, the one who's going to be killed, is the one who's going to be raised and glorified. And don't ever separate those two things. These things go together. So we read that Jesus took Peter and John and James up to a mountain to pray on the eighth day. 
This is not the first mountaintop experience that Jesus has had so far, and it won't be the last. He's been on a high mountain at least three other times so far in the gospel. Um, Once during his temptation in the wilderness, once outside of Nazareth, and once in preaching uh, to to his people. In the first mountaintop experience, remember Satan offered Jesus a cheap route. He took him up to a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, here, here, this can all be yours if you just bow the knee to me. That was Jesus's first mountaintop experience in the gospel. In the second mountaintop experience, the people took him up to a mountain, tried to throw him off a cliff outside the city of Nazareth. And in the third mountain uh, uh, story is the Sermon on the Mount, where he outlines the shape of his kingdom. So here, now on a fourth mountain, if you're keeping track, he is revealed in all of his glory. He shines in his glory. And the glory that the men witnessed there on that mountain is only a preview of the glory that he's going to be revealed in on another mountain before this story is over with. Well, it's more like an ugly little hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. But all of these mountain uh, stories are all connected together. They're all tied in. Mountains, what, 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 what's the relevance of mountains? And what, what role do mountains play throughout the scriptures? Well, mountains put you up on a point somewhere between heaven and earth. And so mountains are where men go to meet with God, like, like Moses did. Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai to hear from God and to meet with God. Adam uh, met with God on a mountain. Garden of Eden was on a mountain out of which four rivers flowed. Uh, Rivers flow downhill, right? And so if four rivers are flowing out of Eden, Eden must be elevated. Not only that, but Ezekiel 28 says that Eden uh, was on a high mountain. So later we get the tabernacle, which is like a portable mountain. Uh, The tabernacle is a portable Mount Sinai where we can go to hear the voice of God and where we can meet with God and renew our covenant with God. The the tabernacle is a portable Eden. It's a portable sanctuary where we meet with God. In in the tabernacle, you ascend uh, there to meet with God. As you move into the tabernacle, you ascend in holiness, in, in the preciousness of uh, the furniture in the, in the tabernacle. The altars that the patriarchs uh, built everywhere, the altars that Abraham and, and Isaac built, they're miniature mountains. They're miniature meeting places where you meet with God. So the mountain is a place where you hear God's voice, you get perspective, you see the lay of the land, and then you go back down the mountain and you transform the earth according to heaven's pattern. You do God's will on earth as it's done in heaven. So each of these mountaintop experiences for Jesus so far in the gospel direct our attention to that mountain that's coming, that final act on a mountain where Jesus is going to be suspended between heaven and earth, where he provides the only true ladder to heaven. Men are always making counterfeit ladders to heaven. They're making counterfeit mountains like uh, Babel, like the pyramids, like the high places where uh, the idols are, are, are put and where the people go for their idolatrous practices on the, on the high, high places and the shrines on the mountains. These are all counterfeit ladders to heaven. Jesus is the only true point of connection between heaven and earth. So each time we see him on a mountain, he's there defeating Satan, wrestling with the crowds, uh, connecting suffering to glory and glory to suffering at each point. So then Jesus takes his men, 
on a mountain on the eighth day to pray. Just as Moses took Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu up Mount Sinai, and just as, as Moses ascended that mountain, so God's glory came to rest on that mountain. So now Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain, and the glory of God is going to rest on this mountain on this day. Remember, Moses was called up to receive instructions regarding the building of the tabernacle on Mount Sinai. And what do we read in Exodus? When, when Moses goes up that mountain, we read this. The sight of the glory of Yahweh was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So God lit a fire on Mount Sinai. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, here's a new fire on top of a new mountain, a new shining glory. Because as Jesus prayed, the appearance of his face is altered and his robe becomes white and glistening, Luke tells us. Matthew adds that his clothes shined so bright that they were exceedingly white like snow. And, and Mark says, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So Mark says, you get all the Clorox in the world and you can't whiten a garment as bright as Jesus' garment was that day. So stacking all these things together, I wonder what, what is happening, what is being done to Jesus, or what is he doing? You may have heard or read at some point that the purpose of this event, the purpose of the transfiguration, was for God to reveal the deity of Jesus to the apostles. As if God was in disguise under the flesh of Jesus up to this time. As if this whole time Jesus had been concealing God the Father, and now at the transfiguration, finally, he reveals God the Father. But, but is that consistent with what you know about Jesus? I mean, Jesus never concealed God. His entire purpose all along has been to reveal God the Father. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And he didn't say that to Peter, James, and John because they'd seen the transfiguration. Jesus says that to Philip who wasn't even there that day. So it seems to me that the transfiguration was not only a revelation of the deity of Jesus, which has always been there, but also a revelation of the true humanity of which Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the first fruits of this new humanity, which reflects the glory of God truly. Jesus is the second Adam, but the first of a new kind of people who reflect God's glory. See, God created us to reflect his glory, the way that Moses' face shone when he came back from the mountain. Uh, Moses shined just like Jesus shined that day because Moses was reflecting the glory of God the Father. Just as Stephen's face glowed when he saw that vision of of heavenly glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Stephen's face shone with a glory. And so uh, <clears throat> we're all made to shine this way. All of us are made to glow with God's glory, but sin has dulled us. Compared to what we were created to be, looking at us now is like looking at Polaroids from the 70s. I'm sure my kids look at pictures of me as a kid and say, everything was kind of dull back then. No, actually, it used to be pretty bright, but the picture has faded and things deteriorate. 
And we did wear kind of brown and orange stuff. I guess there was something to that. But looking at, looking at old pictures and, and, and remembering what the reality was, see, for us, everything is muted. Everything is faded. Everything is shrouded. And Jesus here is the only one on that mountain truly reflecting God's glory. Jesus is the sinless one. Jesus is the anointed one. And if you're ever going to reflect the Father's glory the way that he reflects the Father's glory, then you're going to have to take up your cross and live the life that he lived in obedience to God the Father. You're going to have to join him if you're going to reflect glory like this. After Jesus' face and his garments become radiant, then Moses and Elijah appear. As if that were the most expected thing in the world. Oh yeah, Moses and Elijah came and showed up. This is the part where I still feel like I'm on the outside of an inside joke. (laughs) Where I still feel like I'm on the outside of an inside reference. Because I feel like I'm missing something. Moses and Elijah were there. Both of them had been dead for centuries. No one had photographs of Moses and Elijah. How did Peter instantly know who they were? Did Jesus always use their first name when talking to them? Did he say, well, by the way, Moses, as I was saying to you, or Elijah, come here and listen to this. That might have been. uh, But how did Peter instantly know who they were? Um, How were they recognized? Well, Luke doesn't answer that question for us. Neither does he say in what uh, realm of existence Moses and Elijah were in when they met with Jesus. Again, that those details aren't covered. But you know why those questions aren't answered? It's because they're not the most important things in the text. I, I, I get distracted with crazy questions like that. And then I have to remind myself, if I was supposed to know that, if I was supposed to ask that, maybe the information would be there. But I rather need to get back and understand what the text is really saying. <laughs> I have to get back and say, well, wh- why is it that? there? What is being said here? And so uh, none of this is the main point. The central point is what they were talking about. What was Jesus talking about to Moses and Elijah? Well, Jesus spoke about his decease. And isn't that a, a strange word? Uh, let me read that again. Behold, two men were talking with him who are Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word uh, in Greek is exodus. And if you think decease is a funny word to be used there, I, I guess the English translators thought, well, maybe if we put exodus there, that would be even weirder. But the word is literally exodus. He's talking about his departure, his exodus, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. He's going away, but, but the word exodus is actually very helpful because it points us to the way that Jesus' death is going to be a replay of the exodus from Egypt, except in a bigger way. In the first exodus, Moses led God's children out of slavery and onto the promised land. In the new exodus, Jesus is going to lead God's people out of the slavery of sin and death into the new creation, into the the new creation in which the whole world is redeemed. So here's Jesus. He's comparing exodus notes with Moses. He's, He's talking about exodus with Moses the man God entrusted to lead his people and deliver his law, and now the great prophet Elijah, who, by the way, Jesus is always being mistaken for. How many times have we read that so far, that everybody thinks he's Elijah, the resurrected Elijah? Now Jesus is talking to Elijah. Elijah's over here. Jesus is over here. Don't get them mixed up. They're not the same. Elijah's a godly man. He's a saint, but but Jesus is not him. Don't don't mix them up again. And they apparently, apparently confirm Moses and Elijah there 
confirm and assent and approve of what Jesus is doing. Jesus now is, it's evident to these men, Jesus has the law and the prophets in his corner. He's not working in opposition to the law and the prophets. Now, I'm trying to not get ahead of myself and keep in line with the account here. At, at some point since going up the mountain, the apostles must have fallen asleep. But when they hear these voices, they wake up, they rub the sleep out of their eyes, and they see all of this. And that's when Peter shares his great idea. Peter says, let's build three tabernacles. And when he says the word, he used the word, word tabernacle, he's using the common word for tent or booth, like the booths that they would build at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember every year the people of Israel would take a week off and they would build these kind of ramshackle little huts in and around Jerusalem and they would commemorate the Exodus and they would tell their children, remember when God's people left uh, Egypt, they had to dwell in tents as they were a nomadic people. And so for the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, you live uh, in these booths and, uh, and, and you relive the Exodus. Well, what Peter's not saying, what Peter isn't saying here is let's build three shrines. He isn't saying let's build three temples on this mountain so we can have a new Moses cult and a new Elijah cult and a new Jesus cult. He's simply picking up on the Exodus stuff. He hears them talking about Exodus stuff. He thinks, well, okay, that's what we'll do. Let's celebrate and commemorate the old Exodus but God is doing something far greater here than instituting an Exodus reenactors club on the top of this mountain. A cloud comes and overshadows them. Okay, and again, at this point, we should come to expect something like this. Of course, God's glory cloud is going to come just as it rested on Mount Sinai, just as it filled the tabernacle, just as it filled the temple. Here, the, it's going to come again on the day of Pentecost, right? Now this, this cloud comes and rests over them. And a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Just as God spoke to Moses on the mountain, now he speaks again on this mountain. And when he's finished speaking, Jesus is alone with Peter, James, and John. This whole series of events is pregnant with information about who Jesus is. He's the one that God the Father wants you to listen to from here on. Moses and Elijah are not diminished. Their words are the words of the Holy Spirit. But now you're going to read Moses and Elijah. Now you're going to read the law and the prophets through the lens of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Now we're going to see that Jesus is the guiding interpretive principle for understanding the law and the prophets. He's the one that we hear even when we read Moses and Elijah. And all that Jesus does here shows that Jesus is the greater Moses. He goes up to the mountain. He takes three friends. He hears the voice of God. He reflects God's glory. All of this, just as Moses did. But God has also contrasted him with Moses. So now if after the transfiguration, you're only holding on to the first Moses... And for many of them, it was their misreading of the first Moses that they were holding on to. But if all you have is the first Moses, you don't have everything God wants you to have. And you're in big trouble if all you're holding on to is the first Moses. Notice also that this doesn't happen anywhere near Jerusalem. It doesn't happen near the temple. Where would we assume God's glory would rest? We would assume God's glory rests on his house in the temple. Where do you go to hear the voice of God? You go to the temple, you go to the holy city. 
But the temple and the city are marked for destruction. They have become an abomination. And so when this takes place, it doesn't take place in the city of Jerusalem. It doesn't take place on the temple mount. This happens on a different mountain, way up in the hills of Galilee, outside of the authority and outside of the knowledge of the high priest and Herod. If the glory of God rests on Jesus and not on the temple and not on the city, then if you're holding on to those things apart from Jesus, you don't have everything God wants you to have and you're in big trouble. And by the way, here is Moses and Elijah giving their blessing and assent to what Jesus is doing in his exodus. These two men, again, represent the law and the prophets. They represent the sum total of God's revelation to his people. If the law and the prophets point to Jesus, and if you try to hold on to the law and the prophets apart from Jesus, you don't have everything God wants you to have, and you're in big trouble. With the transfiguration, God the Father is blessing and affirming God the Son. God the Father says to God the Son, you are the man who reflects my glory. And the Son is glorified by the Father. Once again, he's glorified not by grasping for glory, not by demanding it, not by pouting or stomping his foot. He does it by dying. He does it by setting his path on, setting his foot on the path that leads toward the cross. So after they get down from the mountain, all the gospel writers tell us about the failed exorcism that happened right after that. And we don't have time to cover that today. Lord willing, we'll look at this next week. But you remember there was a boy with an unclean spirit. The disciples couldn't cast out the demon and Jesus chastises the disciples. Then he rebukes the spirit. He heals the child. And then we pick up in verse 43 after this thing happens. They were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. Isn't that a great phrase? I'm going to keep that in my hip pocket, especially, you know, talking to kids. Let these words sink down into your ears. Get them inside your head. For the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Jesus does not let them forget, even in the face of the glory and the majesty and the wonder and his power, he does not let them forget what's about to happen, what he's headed for. On the heels of this glorious, amazing, wonderful mountaintop experience, They don't even have time to process everything that's happened before they get down to the bottom of the mountain, down with the difficulties and the messes and the sin and the travail of life on earth, the failure of not being able to handle this demon possession. But Jesus says, remember what you learn on the mountain that prepares you for what you face in the valley. What you heard and saw on the top of the mountain is still true when you get to the bottom. There's not a different set of truths And Jesus pulls their focus right back to the suffering that is looming on the horizon. Don't forget where all this is headed, Jesus says. All of the glory and the majesty and the might and the power that you witnessed on the top of the mountain doesn't come cheaply. The only path to glory runs through the cross. And so these two scenes here today, we see one on the mountain of transfiguration one on Mount Calvary. These, these two scenes are connected and tied in a way that he won't let them forget the, the mountain that he's headed toward for a second. 
These two mountain experiences reflect each other and interpret each other in their contrast. Here on the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus is surrounded by two saints of old. On the cross, he's surrounded by two criminals. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' garments glisten in glory. On Mount Calvary, his garments are divided and gambled for between uh, uh, criminals, and his garments have been taken from him in his humiliation. In both scenes, there's a mention of Elijah. Remember, they say, is he calling for Elijah when he's on the cross? And in both scenes, the people misunderstand what they're seeing. Here on the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus is confessed as the son of God by the voice of God. In the second, he's confessed to be the son of God by a Roman soldier. Both scenes are witnessed by his followers. The first by an inner circle of disciples. Later, women from afar witness what's going on. All of these parallels reveal that for Jesus, suffering and glory are to be understood together. They're two sides of the same coin. And two things are made obvious to us about the life that Jesus calls us to. When he asks us to take up our cross and follow him on this path that runs through things like the Mount of Transfiguration, but also runs through the cross, Mount Calvary, two things are obvious to us about this life. One is that this life is hard, and the other is that this life is glorious. We can't ever forget either one. We, we can't ever downplay either one. If you only focus on the hard parts, you miss the glory and the freedom and the power and the levity and the joy that is properly part of the Christian life. If you only focus on the glorious parts, you cheapen the sacrifice and the trials and the hard work that are all part of the Christian life. The transfiguration reveals to us both sides, that glory and honor comes with being the kind of man that Jesus was. If we aren't like Jesus, it's because we haven't grasped this message and we haven't taken up our cross daily because we want the glory without the suffering. We want the acclaim and the praise and the fame and the success and the achievement without the cross. Or we just want the rest without the cross. We want the Sabbath. In other words, we want everybody to leave us alone without the cross. We want, we want to, a pain-free path to achievement. And we want that in every area of our lives. We want other people to do the hard work and the suffering necessary to conform to us. Or, forgetting the glory and forgetting the joyful parts, we mope and sulk and are perpetually downcast and we despair because we've gotten the idea that there's no happiness, no satisfaction, no contentedness, no pleasure to be had by us or anybody else. And we'll be sure that nobody else is happy either. All of us remember, must remember, a couple of key basic Bible truths. Again, we're, we're telling you, this life is both hard and it's glorious. And that if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your eternal life, if you're trusting in him alone for your eternal life, and because you trust him, you've been united to him by baptism, you are faithful to his body and bride, you can have confidence that your sins have been forgiven. Jesus has died to secure your fellowship with the Father. You and your sins have died with him, and he has been raised to life, and so you have been raised to life, and the Father is pleased with you just as he's pleased with his Son. Because he is pleased with his son, and because you are in Christ, he is pleased with you. Now, 
because we're so thankful for this, this unbelievable gift of union with Christ, and because we want nothing more than to reflect the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want nothing more than to know Him, to reflect the glory of the Godhead more and more throughout our life. Because we want to do that, we take up our cross daily, and we put to death those things that distort the reflection of his glory. We put to death those things that mute the reflection of his glory. Those things that dull it, that make it less than shiny. And so I just want to close with a couple of quick questions. Just something I want you to meditate on. Ask yourself this question. Is there something that God is calling you to put to death so that you might see Jesus more clearly and might reflect his glory more fully? Is there something that God wants all of us as a church to put to death so that we might reflect him in all of his glory without any distortion, without muting his glory at all, just as Jesus fully and completely reflected the glory of the Father? We as his body are called to do that. What do we need to put to death to do that more clearly? And ask yourself, am I working hard to keep something alive that God has sentenced to death? Am I taking pleasure in something that God hates? Am I putting something on life support that I just want to keep around? I'm afraid to pull the plug because that might rob me of some momentary fleeting pleasure. But it's something I've got to have. It's my, it's my precious. It's my, it's, my, it's my favorite. It's my thing. And if I pull the plug, I, I, I just don't want to know how to feel about myself. I, I just don't want to know who I am. Is there something that you're keeping on life support? Is there something you're keeping alive that God has sentenced to death? Are my weaknesses, are my bad habits, are the areas where I repeatedly fail, are those pointing to something that I need to put to death? Some secret sin that I've never dealt with, something I've never confessed, some bitterness that I've been nursing, some prideful attitude, some fear of what men think, some secret desire for approval or worldly glory. Is God showing me something? Is he pointing arrows at something that ought to be obvious to me that I need to put to death? That is keeping me from reflecting fully and clearly the glory of the Lord Jesus. We see the glory that Jesus reflected on this mountain. And I hope you say with me, I think we all say, I want to do that. I want to shine the light of God's glory into all the dark places. I want to reflect his honor and majesty and holiness. Yes, okay. Put to death the sins that mar that image. Crucify them. Take up your cross daily and walk the way that Jesus walked. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves and to know ourselves uh, more and, and more clearly so that we can, can see and hate those things that you hate, so that we can put to death the things that you have sentenced to death so that we can nail the things to the cross that you have already nailed to the cross in the death of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would help each of us by your Holy Spirit to have the strength and the courage and the stamina to pick up the cross and to follow Jesus so that we can reflect this glory that we see him shining with on this mountain on this day. I pray this for all of us. 
all of us who are united to you and, and united to this congregation especially. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.